It's good to be together, and we are going to start our study tonight that we are calling this series of studies Panoramic View, or a Panorama of the Prophets, and we're going to kick it off tonight with Isaiah. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into this. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for your grace, and God, we ask right now that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to your word. Lord, I pray that you would overlook my inadequacies tonight as a teacher and God, that you would just speak and that you would bring insight. And Lord, tonight we want to pray for all the people who are suffering over in Haiti and the loved ones of those individuals. God, we pray for your grace to be upon them and in this time of tragedy that they would turn to you and find a refuge, Lord, in you. Lord, I also pray tonight for Corey Gruder who whose dad passed away yesterday, and we ask God that you would uh, just be with Corey and his family, and uh, Lord, that you would give them grace, and that you would comfort them with that comfort that only you can bring. And Lord, tonight, again, we just give you uh, this time in the Word. We ask that you'd speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 20, Paul the Apostle met with the elders of the church in Ephesus, It was a church that he had pastored for three years, and he had come back to kind of hold a little conference with these guys to give them some instructions. And one of the things that he said to them there was that while he was with them ministering there in Ephesus, that he had been faithful to declare to them the whole counsel of the Word of God. Now, the question is this, does that mean that Paul had been faithful to teach through the entirety of the Old Testament Scriptures? It could be. He was only with them, though, for three years. And even Bible teachers that move quickly takes about seven to go through the entire Bible, but it's possible But I think it's more likely that it meant that Paul had been faithful to declare the whole counsel of the Word of God to them by revealing to them the storyline that runs throughout the Scriptures. That from Genesis to Revelation, there is this scarlet thread of redemption. This scarlet thread of God unfolding His plan to rescue man. Now, Paul the Apostle said a very interesting thing in the book of Romans, in chapter 6, verse 17. It's on the screen. He said, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, this is a very interesting verse at first glance, and it's easy to to read it the wrong way, especially that last line. We're prone to read that last line in this way, or at least to interpret that last line in this way, as the form of doctrine that has been delivered to you. But that's not what it says. It says that we have been delivered to a form of doctrine. We've been delivered to it. A doctrine is a system of beliefs, and the idea is is that we've been given over to it. Now, the word form, there is mold. Kind of like in the idea of when somebody makes a clay or a wax mold. Mike Rizel, good friend of, of mine, and you know he's been here and he does his pot thing and he sells his pots outside and beautiful pots that he makes, but once he designs one, he makes a mold of it. So that when he's away, others can take the mold and put in the clay and put it into the kindling and make the pot. He makes a mold of that. And God has created this mold that we call doctrine. That reveals his heart. It reveals his plan. It reveals what really the Bible tells us about God and who he is and and really what's his plan for us and what's his plan for man. And what Paul says there is we have been given over to that mold. Now, once you start getting the mold, once you start understanding the mold, it starts molding you. It starts shaping you. 
into that image that God desires for your life. Now, that really is the theme and the purpose of what we are doing right now on Wednesday nights here at Calvary Chapel of Vista. On the first Wednesday night of the month, we had it last week that we're doing what we're calling Credo. It's on communion night each month that we take one major doctrinal subject of the Bible to dig into, to look at. And these studies that we're going to do once a month throughout the course of the year will follow the storyline of the Bible, revealing to us the mold, starting with what we looked at last week, who is God? We talked about the Trinity, and it'll go all the way through as we work our way through each month to the end time scenario concerning who God is. Then on the other three and sometimes four Wednesday nights of the month, we are going to take a panoramic view of the books of the prophets. We're going to do an overview, and again, as we go through these, as we go through this overview of these books, you are going to see the form that we have been given to. The form of doctrine that has been laid out very clearly in each one of these books. The first week, we're going to do an overview. The second week, we're going to come back and we're going to focus on and just kind of pick out all throughout the, the, these books what it has to tell us and what it says to us about Jesus. Now, Isaiah is going to be a little different. Tonight, we're going to, or we're going to actually do two weeks of overview in this book, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But we are going to see a common theme as we work our way through these books that man is lost, but a Savior is coming. Man is lost, and there's judgment that is coming, but there's also a hope that is coming. Tonight we start with the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has been called the Prince of the Prophets. His ministry was longer, his style more eloquent, and his message more sweeping than any of the other prophets. He served during the reigns of four different kings, and Isaiah was on prophetic duty for almost 60 years, almost six decades, from 740 to 680 B.C., His writing style indicates or suggests that he was highly educated. And according to tradition, Isaiah was a man of rank, that he was a a member of the royal family, possibly even a cousin of King Uzziah. Now I want to read to you a, a, a long quote. You can follow along on the screen from one of my favorite Bible commentators, Ray Stedman. This is what he says about the book of Isaiah. He starts by saying this, the books of the Bible are like national parks. They are open to everyone to roam in and are a delight to explore all by yourself. But each park has a characteristic peculiar peculiar to itself that distinguishes it from the others. And you appreciate a park better if you know what that characteristic is. I've learned to appreciate some of the distinct characteristics of the great national parks in the West. For instance, if you want to see nature's various moods, go to Yellowstone Park. There she pulls all the tricks out of her bag and throws everything together. If you want to see a mountain grandeur in Cool Lakes, Glacier Park in Montana is the place to go. If you want to be awed and humbled and stirred, then go to the Grand Canyon. If you're looking for a quiet valley in which to rest and reflect, uh, Yosemite fills that bill. That is, any other time than midsummer when 20,000 people are in the valley with you. Sometimes I think these books of the Bible are like this. The book of Revelation is very much like Yellowstone National Park. It's full of spouting geysers and all kinds of weird symbolism and variety of formations. The Gospel of John is more like Yosemite, quiet and deep and reverent. But there's no question that the book of Isaiah is the Grand Canyon of Scripture. Geologists tell us that the Grand Canyon is a miniature history of the earth, a condensed history, a pocket volume of the past. Well, just so, the book of Isaiah has long been recognized as a miniature Bible. Consider, how many books do we have in the Bible? How many books are there? 66, correct. How many chapters are there in the book of Isaiah? 66. Some of you aren't sure about that. Um, 66. How many books are in the Old Testament? 
39. How many in the New Testament? 27. Good, you guys can add. Um, (laughs) The book of Isaiah divides exactly that same way. The first half of the book comprises 39 chapters. Now, what's interesting is there's a very distinct division that happens in chapter 40 so that the remaining 27 chapters constitute the second half of the book. We'll talk about that distinction in just a moment. But chapters 1 through 39 focus on condemnation. Chapters 40 through 66 on consolation. The first 39 chapters are denunciatory. The last 27 chapters are conciliatory. The first 39 chapters, the emphasis is on government and law. And the last uh, 27 chapters, the emphasis is on love and grace. Now, the New Testament starts with the history of John the Baptist. John was to be the forerunner, right, of the Messiah. He was the one that came and, and preached and was, was telling the nation to prepare the way of the Lord, to get their hearts ready for the Lord. Well, I told you that chapter 40 started with a very, very distinct beginning. It begins the second half of the book. It, it, it begins what we you know, would look at as the New Testament half of the book of Isaiah. And it contains the prophetic passage that predicts the coming of John the Baptist. It, it, it predicts the, the prophetic passage of the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah 43, that's, that's how it begins. And what's interesting, as you read the end of the book of Isaiah, you find that chapter 66 speaks of a new heaven and a new earth that God is creating. So as you look at the book of Isaiah, you find that it is remarkably close. It's a remarkably close analogy that really parallels the entire Bible. And this is why we're going to spend two weeks on overview. And you'll be glad tonight that we're doing this when I'm done. Uh, We're going to do chapters 1 through 39 tonight. And you're going to be glad that we only went that far. And then next week, we're going to do chapters 40 through 66. And then on the third week, we're going to come and we're going to just walk our way through and look at not all, but many of the prophetic passages in Isaiah that talk to us and speak to us about Jesus Christ. Now, having said all this, I I want to say this. This has been a lot harder than I thought it was going to be to put together. A lot harder because the thing is, is you're trying to go through and figure out, okay, what do I leave out? You know, and there's just so much good stuff in here. And so I'm just going to just say this, that it's going to take me probably a couple weeks to kind of get this down. I've never kind of taught this way before and kind of laying out this way. And uh, it was a challenge. It was really, really a challenge, but it's also been fun. Another thing about Isaiah is that Isaiah is quoted more in the New Testament than any other prophet. Isaiah is mentioned by name 21 times. Chapter 53 alone is quoted or alluded to 85 times in the New Testament. And the book of Isaiah has been called, for that reason, the fifth gospel. Some of the clearest messianic prophecies come from the pen of Isaiah. I know one Bible teacher who counted 121 messianic prophecies in the book of Isaiah. That's why I said next week we're not going to go through every single one of them. We'd be here till midnight, but we're going to go through a lot of them. But Jesus' virgin birth, his sinless character, his life, his miracles, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his second coming, his future kingdom are all addressed in the book of Isaiah. In fact, the name Isaiah means Jehovah is salvation. And it's a book that proves that Jesus is the Savior. Also in the book of Isaiah, it's the only book that names, gives Satan the name Lucifer. And it's one of only two books in the Bible that describes his fall. The book begins here in in chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Isaiah first served under King Uzziah. 
Uzziah was a good, godly king. He reigned 52 years. His obedience to the Lord and his heart for the Lord really brought about a a sense of prosperity and stability to the nation of Israel. For the next 18 years, his son Jotham followed in his father's footsteps, but Jotham's successor Ahaz rebelled against God. His 19 years of leading the nation into idolatry brought about a judgment that God was going to discipline the nation of Judah by way of the Babylonians. Tradition tells us that Isaiah the prophet was martyred. That King Manasseh, when he came on, he didn't like Isaiah. He didn't like his sermons. He didn't like his message. He didn't like the fact that he was calling the nation of Israel to repentance. And so Manasseh kind of put out a hit if you would, on Isaiah. And Isaiah, uh, tradition tells us he was fleeing and he went to hide in this hallowed out log of like an oak tree. But the soldiers found him in there and they ended up sawing that log in two, which a lot of Bible scholars believe is what the writer of Hebrews in the great hall of faith in chapter 11, verse 37, when he says there concerning some of those who were martyred, that they were sawn in two, many believe that he was describing there the martyrdom of of Isaiah. Now, another interesting thing about the book of Isaiah is this. One of the greatest modern archaeological discoveries has been the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In that discovery, which is truly amazing, but one of the most amazing discoveries about the Dead Sea Scroll was the 24-foot-long scroll of the entire book of Isaiah. Now, why is that so important? Well, prior to this find in 1947, and, and those of you who know, you remember that it was found because a little Bedouin uh, shepherd boy was, had one of his goats get away and went up into a cave, and he threw a rock into the cave hoping to scare it to make it to come out, and he heard this crash of like clay shattering, and he goes up into the, into the cave, and he, and he sees all these scrolls that were in these clay jars that were hidden in these caves, and they were scrolls of different books of the Bible, and they found the book of Isaiah. Isaiah in its entirety. Now what's interesting is this, the the scroll that they found was written in 200 B.C. And what's significant about that is suddenly we have a book of the Bible that is 1,100 years older than the oldest manuscript that we had before that. 1,100 years, and here's the best part. The best part about the Dead Sea Scrolls isn't what they found, but it's what they didn't find. And what they didn't find with this manuscript written 1,100 years before our earliest complete manuscript is that they did not find any errors in it. None. 1,100 years of perfect continuity and scholarship. In fact, there were only nine letters that were different from the other manuscript. Only nine. Nine letters that were different. No other ancient manuscript ever written holds up to that type of scrutiny. Nothing written by the philosophers. Nothing of the works of Shakespeare. Way more errors in those writings which were also hand-copied and and passed down through the ages. It's it's incredible. It is absolutely amazing. It's a great evidence of the reliability of the Bible. Well, tonight we're going to focus, as I said, on chapters 1 through 39. The theme in these chapters is condemnation. And here's how the first 39 chapters break down. Chapters 1 through 12 give us the condemnation on Judah the nation of Judah. Chapters 13 through 23 give us the condemnation of the other nations. Chapters 28 through 35, the condemnation on Judah and Israel together. And then chapters 36 through 39 is the condemnation of Assyria. Now, if you're paying close attention, you notice that I I left out chapters 24 through 27. Why is that? Well, those chapters are, they constitute what we might call a parenthesis. And those chapters have been called Isaiah's little apocalypse. And Isaiah takes a break to speak about way off future events and judgments and glory that the world has not yet seen. 
And he speaks about those in those chapters that have been titled Isaiah's Little Apocalypse. It's his little book of revelation, if you would. And it, it bears, in a short, uh, those, uh, those short chapters, a resemblance to the book of, of Revelation. And we'll talk a little bit about, about that when we get there tonight. But notice verse 2, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Now, following the children of Israel's exodus from Egypt, for 700 years, God cradled, nurtured, taught, and disciplined Israel with patience and the perseverance of a parent. He cared for his people, and yet they refused to respond to his instruction. So throughout that time, God would punish his people with famine. At other times, he'd reward them with prosperity. But neither one of them worked for very long. They seemed to always go that way of just being rebellious. They were perpetually rebellious. They would break his law. They pursued idols. And so in verse 3, God bemoans their tendencies. He says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey's its master's crib. But Israel does not know my people do not consider Now, it's interesting, a few years back, the Israeli police in Haifa used this verse to bust a burglary ring. What was going on is these guys were going into places, they were robbing them, and on this particular occasion, they they got some stuff, they loaded it upon an ox, and they were going to use the ox to to, to bring it to wherever their hideout was. But somebody came and they ran off and they left the ox. So here's what the police said. They took the ox, they starved it for a few days, and then they they let it go. And guess what it did? It went home. Yeah. It went to where it knew there was food. And and they just followed it and they arrested all of the robbers who were there. Now you've you've heard the old metaphor, he's as dumb as an ox. Well, apparently an ox is not so dumb. And Isaiah is saying that Israel was not as smart as an ox. At least an ox knows where to go when it's hungry. At least the ox knows who butters his bread. At least the ox knows where to go and get blessing and help. But not Israel. They don't know where to go. They're wandering off stupidly and ignorantly. And this is what amazed him. It amazed him that, uh, that they were just so stubborn to not turn to the Lord. To not turn to him. That they, they were dumber than the ox. Here's the question, though, I throw out to you tonight. Are you dumber than the ox? Where do you go? Where do you turn when spiritual hunger sets in? Do you take a pill? Do you run up a bill? What do you do? Do you go out and get a drink or do you go consult the shrink? You know, it's like, where where do you do? Where do you go? Where do you run? People run to all these different types of things. You know, I know people who, man, they're depressed. They're going through it and they go out and they just charge their credit cards. And it's like, man, you know, it makes them feel good until they get the bill. You know, and then it's like this horrendous cycle. Where do you go? Where do you run? It doesn't take a smart person to understand that, hey, Jesus has what we need. And like the ox returns to his crib, we need to know where to go. Now, in verse 4, God says, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden or loaded down with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors, They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. And they have turned away backwards. Listen, if you are not pursuing after the Lord, you're going backwards. The writer Philip Yancey makes an accurate observation about God's approach in the Old Testament. He says, Jehovah does not think like a social worker. He behaves instead like a holy God trying desperately to communicate with cantankerous human beings. And he vents his frustration. And he gets upset. And he's not always delicate. He's not always diplomatic. 
and just bearing his heart. Now notice also in verse 4, Isaiah uses the phrase, the Holy One of Israel. This is Isaiah's favorite title for God. Of the 31 times that this appears in the Bible, it's used 26 times in the book of Isaiah. 26 times he uses this phrase for God. Now, in light of God's holiness, Israel sins, and they just continue to go down that path. But notice in verses 11 through 14, and let's read this together. The Lord says to, he's going to indict them concerning their worship. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and of rams and of the fat of the cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They trouble me. I am weary of bearing them. And here God takes issue with their, really, their sorry attitude in approaching Him and their hypocrisy. All of which had rendered their sacrifices as being meaningless. Their acts of worship were just worthless in the eyes of God. They offered a lamb with evil in their hearts. And I want you to note this. That rituals are never a substitute for sincerity. And in the eyes of God, the heart of the offerer is more important than the offering. And so God says in verse 13, don't bring them anymore. Don't bring them anymore. And you know what? I point this out because we can be guilty of the same offense. We can come into a setting like this. We can come to church, raise our hands, sing praises, you know, drop money in the offering basket, and then ignore the Lord the other six days of the week. Or we can do that, and it's, it's lip service because really there's hypocrisy going on in our hearts. But here's what amazes me. And here's the storyline, guys. I want you to catch this. Here's what we see over and over again as we work our way through is that despite the hardness of their hearts, despite their rebellion against God, He doesn't give up on them. Look at verse 18. God makes an offer to His people. He says, come now, let us reason together says the Lord. In other words, let's settle this out of court. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool if you are willing and obedient. This is so beautiful. This is so awesome. That if we are willing and obedient, the Lord, He'll have His way in your life. He'll forgive and He forgets. He cleanses. He takes the sin-stained heart and He washes it as white as snow. And despite their rebellion, despite their hypocritical worship, God says, hey, come, let us reason together. He doesn't give up on them. It reminds me, I was actually reminded of this yesterday because I was out at Marietta at the Youth Pastors Conference and kind of hanging out with our guys, and my good buddy Greg Opine was sharing there yesterday morning, and I was thinking about this event that happened in his life that back when we were youth pastors together, as he was talking, and it, what was going on is there was a particular kid, maybe you've experienced this kind of thing, who was, was in his youth group that was just giving him trouble. The kid was just rebellious, he just, just was, was difficult all the time, just difficult. And Greg was ready to just kick him out of the youth group. He was ready to just say, look, you're out of here. You're gone. I'm just tired of it. And he went, before he did it, he did a wise thing. He went to his pastor and said, I got this kid and here's what I'm planning to do. I'm, I'm going to kick him out of the youth group. And his pastor, Brian Newberry, he said to him, he said, uh, well, let me just ask you something, Greg. You ever been rebellious? Yeah. You ever been a flake? Yeah. You ever been a problem? Yeah. Has God ever kicked you out? 
of his family? You know, has God ever kicked you out? No. Okay, we'll go back and work with this kid some more, you know, and, and it was such a, a moving thing, you know, in his life, but I think it was such a good thing, too, because it represents that heart of the Lord, and we see God, the patience of God. Yes, there's judgment. Yes, there's consequences for sin, but God keeps coming back time and time again and saying, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Well, chapter 1 the last of chapter 1, Jerusalem is compared to a harlot. It's probably about as bad as you can get. And she's sold out to sin and compromised with idols, and God will purge her with the fires of judgment. Now, the rest of chapters 1 through 5 deal with the woes and warnings upon Judah. And one of the interesting things is that vineyards are a familiar sight in Israel, They dotted the hillsides all over the country, and in the Old Testament, the vine was symbolic of the nation of Israel. And I want you to turn over to chapter 5 now. We're going to jump ahead, make a little progress here. And in chapter 5, Isaiah writes, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill here in chapter 5 isaiah plays off this imagery and he writes this song of the vineyard in that that really this is the song of the vineyard in a nutshell that god plants it sin ruins it god lifts its protection and judgment comes that's the song of the vineyard that's what he lays out And again, I point this out because Jesus in John chapter 15 uses the analogy as well of the vineyard. I am the vine and you are the branches. And he talks there about how we need to abide in him and abide with him. And that if we abide with him, we bear much fruit. But even when we're abiding, he says that there's times where he comes and he prunes, he cuts back. And sometimes that's difficult, isn't it? When he cuts back the things from our lives that maybe don't belong and he convicts and he says, you know, hey, this needs to go. He prunes and he transforms but the purpose of it is so that you can bear more fruits. I've told you the story before when we were living in Oregon, we had this, you know, little tree. I can't remember, I think it was an orange tree. And I left for work one morning and my wife said, I'm going to prune the tree. And I came home and it was like, the tree was gone, you know. I mean, she, had, she didn't prune it. I mean, she just destroyed it. That's what I'm thinking. Like, you know, man, it's kind of like these trees we have out here. I mean, they're really pruned right now, you know. Um, but wait till they grow back. I mean, they grow back. And sure enough, when spring came, that tree grew back. We had more oranges or whatever the fruit was that year than ever. And that's what God does. He cuts, he prunes to bring us to get more fruit. But if we disconnect from him, we're left out on our own and taken away. And just like Israel needed to stay connected to God, so do we. Now, the rest of chapter 5 consists of six woes or warnings that God lays out for the judgment of man's sin. And in verse 8, he says, Woe to those who join house to house. The idea there is that of developers who produce crowded conditions. That God will thin out the crowd with His coming judgment. In verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night, until wine inflames them. Kind of that party mentality. Woe to those who just give their days away and their nights away to just drinking and getting drunks and, and all of that. Did you know that the only cells in your body that reproduce are brain cells? And what's interesting is that you're born with 17 billion such cells and every single time that you consume large quantities of alcohol, you kill off 10,000 Brain cells? That's one of the reasons why I don't drink. I need all the brain cells I can get, you know. 
I can't afford to have any destroyed. <laughs> Verse 18 says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Here's a person mocking God. He, he pulls his sin along, daring God to bring judgment. In verse 20, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 21, woe to men mighty at drinking wine. In verse 22, woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating wine. He hits on this issue several times in here. But here's what's interesting. Chapters 1 through 5, it's woe, woe, woe upon the people of Judah. But something changes in chapter 6. In the midst of the woes, Isaiah is given a vision of God. Chapter 6, notice, begins this way. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is known as the Trishagion. Some people think it's hitting the three persons of the triune Godhead that we talked about last week. We don't know, but they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah has this incredible picture, but notice when it happens in the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that this incredible king who brought national reform and revival to Judah, who was loved and admired by the people, who was a mentor and one that Isaiah looked up to radically when he died. He's gone. And I'm sure Isaiah, like the rest of the nation, was bummed by that. You know, they were like, man, you know, oh, can you believe it? He's gone, you know, kind of thing. When that happened, that's when Isaiah saw the Lord. And, you know, sometimes that's what happens in our lives. It's when we get our eyes off of men that we see God. He saw the Lord on his throne, high and lifted up. And, guys, that's what we need. We need a vision of God. We need to remember that when things are going rough in our lives, that God is still on the throne. And what's interesting is you would think at this particular time that Isaiah would say, wow, that's incredible. What does he say? He says, woe. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And you read on and it says that God sent an angel to come and take a coal of fire and touch his lips. And his sin was purged. Because special cleansing is needed before special service. And suddenly Isaiah was in a place where he could hear God speak. And he heard the voice of the Lord saying in verse 8, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Notice the us there. There's another indication of the Trinity that we were talking about last week. The plurality of the Godhead mentioned there. Who will go for us? Who will I send? And Isaiah responds and saying, Lord, here I am. Send him. That's not what he says, is it? That's what we do a lot. There's a need. Lord, here I, here I am. But Lord, send him. That guy, I mean, I've been praying. He needs to go. Listen, if you see a problem, you know why you're seeing it? Because God wants you to be a part of the solution. Isaiah responds by saying, Lord, here am I. Send me. And God says, go. But I want you to note that before God says no, Isaiah said, whoa. And the reason why that's important is because before God is going to really use us, we have to be broken. And Isaiah here was broken by his sin when he saw the Lord in his glory. And God gives him this message. Now, chapters 7 through 9, we have the hope for Israel announcing the coming of a child named Emmanuel which means God with us. And this will be a special child who will be a savior. He'll be a conqueror and he'll be a king. And we're going to look at these chapters more in our third study when we look at Christ in Isaiah. But as we keep moving on into chapter 8, we note that Isaiah had two sons. And Isaiah's two sons, they were given prophetic names. This often happened. They'd have a son and they would say, okay, name him this. And the first boy was named Sheer Jessub, which means a remnant will return. 
And through that boy, Isaiah was predicting judgment, but, but the fact that God always has a remnant for a new beginning. He always reserves a remnant. And the other boy, his name was Mahir Shalah Hajbash. What a name. I think I'd rather be a boy named Sue. <laughs> but his weird name means speed the plunder, swift to spoil. And Isaiah explains it in verse 4. He says, For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. Now here he's prophesying about the judgment that's going to come upon the, the, the nation of Israel. Because at this time, uh, the, nation, or the, the country was divided into two separate nations. Up in the north was Israel, uh, ten tribes, and Damascus was uh, their capital city or Samaria was their capital city and then in the southern end was Judah and that's where Isaiah was but here he's prophesying about the the judgment that would come upon Israel and the haste that would come upon it now as we jump ahead to chapter 11 we have another word of hope there in verse 1 it says that there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots a branch from the root of Jesse. And all through the Bible, this is what we see, is that God is saying, I'm going to judge man for his sin. Sin brings consequences. Rebellion brings judgment. But there's always this ray of hope. And the ray of hope is not in a political agenda, but the ray of hope is in a person, the person of Jesus Christ that he refers to here as a branch from the root of Jesse, from the family of Jesse, from which David would come. Notice in verse 10, he says that this, uh, this hope would even be for the Gentiles. And then in verse 2, he describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Notice, let's read this. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord shall rest upon him. That, that's the Holy Spirit. That's who we run to. That's who we go to in our, our time of uh, when we need counsel to, to seek the Lord. This is what he brings. Now, the rest of chapter 11 looks beyond uh, a serious destruction to the Messiah's future kingdom. Notice verse 6, it says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. In verse 8, The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. And Jesus is going to, what he's telling us there is that when Jesus comes, he, he ends the hostility between animals and humans. Verse 9 says that they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea, or as the water covers the sea. Notice we're told in verse 11 that it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand against the, uh, again the second time to recover the remnant of His people who are left. The first time was after Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. They remained in Israel until 70 A.D. when the Romans drove them out. And since then, the Jews have really remained dispersed throughout the nations. It hasn't really been until this last century that they began to return to their homeland a second time. And they are coming back in large numbers right now. We are living in a day and age where we are seeing the fulfillment, the partial fulfillment of Isaiah 11, verse 12. Now, Isaiah chapter 12 is a song of praise. That after God's judgment has been poured out, that He will restore and comfort Israel. I love verse 5. Sing to the Lord, for He has done excellent things. Now, Chapters 13 through 23 are the condemnation of the nations that are around Israel. They break down this way. Chapters 13 and 14 is the judgment upon Babylon. Chapters 15 and 16, or the, the latter part of chapter 14, is the judgment upon Assyria and Philistia, where the Philistines resided. Chapters 15 and 16 is the judgment upon Moab. 
Chapter 17, the judgment upon Damascus. Chapter 18, Ethiopia. Chapter 19, Egypt. Chapters 20 and 21, Babylon again. Chapter 22 is Tyre. Chapter 23 is Assyria again. Now, in chapter 14, why don't you turn over there, we're introduced to Satan. And notice what chapter 14 focuses on the king of Babylon. But here's what I want you to see. This is the end of the, the reign of Babylon. This is Belshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, when, when everything's going to come to pot. Remember the handwriting on the wall? But what chapter 14 reveals to us is this, is that behind the king in Babylon, the king at that present time, as well as the king future, as well as the Antichrist, because Babylon is the city that, that we is talked about all throughout the Bible, and it's in the end time scenario, that behind the ruler of Babylon is Satan himself. And he goes on to describe him there in these chapters. Notice, or in this chapter, notice verse 19, Satan's judgment is described in ominous terms in verse 9. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming, it says. Now, this is a radical thought. Hell excited to meet Satan when he comes. Now, what's the deal with that? Why are they excited? Is it like, here comes our leader? No, it's all these people that he's deceived. And they're rotten in hell. They're in agony. See, here's the biggest misnomer, I think, in the church today or in people's minds today. I don't think Satan hangs out in hell. He knows it's a lousy place. You know? He's out causing havoc all over the world. He's roaming, you know, trying to get people to not believe in God. So they'll go there and they get deceived and they go there. And Isaiah says he's going to show up and they're going to be waiting for him. You know, they're going to get the, 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 the list of who's coming and they're going to see his name. And it's like, okay, let's get the chains. Let's, you know, they're, they're, they're ready to, to lay into him. Notice verse 10 records their taunts. Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you and the worms cover you. And that's when God takes us on a flashback and recounts Satan's former glory. That he was this angel who had fallen because he sought to exalt himself above God. In verses 13 through 15, he lays out the I wills of Satan. Listen to this or read along with me. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Note the pride. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also, also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Pride entering his heart. Notice verse 16 and 17. It speaks of when Jesus comes and Satan is locked up. It says, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you and saying, is this the man? Is this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? People are going to look at him and they're going to go, is, the, is in light of Jesus, it, wow, is this the guy who caused all, this, all these problems? Well, chapter 14 ends with these, the two kings of Assyria and the Philistines being judged. We move ahead real quickly to chapter 20. In chapter 20, Isaiah delivers a very unique sermon. Perhaps you've heard a sermon on nudity, but Isaiah delivers a sermon in the nude. Okay? That's what happens. Look at verse 2. Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take off your sandals off your feet. And he did so. And walking naked and barefoot, the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked barefoot three years, three years for a sign and wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the kings of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to, sh to the shame of Egypt. Oftentimes, God had his prophets act out their messages. Sometimes in bizarre fashion. This is one of those examples. He had Ezekiel lay on his side. He had Hosea marry a prostitute. Paul bound himself with a, with a belt. But Isaiah, he takes the cake. 
For three years, he's cruising around in his birthday suit, you know. Gosh. <laughs> and he obeyed, you know. Golly, if God said that to me, I'd be like, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm not doing that, you know. <laughs> but it was a sign of what God was going to do with those nations. that They were going to be carried away. Now, why all the emphasis? Why does God spend all these chapters talking about how he's going to judge the nations around Israel? I think this is really important to catch. You see, Israel's going to be in captivity. They're going to be reading the scrolls of Isaiah. They're going to be reading these prophecies. They're going to be remembering them. And these judgments that are going to be coming against the nations are going to be a rays of hope to them that, hey, our deliverance is coming. And our God is king. And he is going to stand up for us. And those who have oppressed us, they are going to be judged. Now, as I said before, chapters 24 through 27 are known as the little apocalypse. And the judgments in these chapters are more global in scope, and they really parallel the book of Revelation. So if you want to turn there real quick. Isaiah 24, verse 1, sets the tone. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste and distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. Now, I believe that these chapters really parallel and they speak of what the New Testament calls the Great Tribulation, that seven-year period where God's going to be pouring out His wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. Verses 19 and 20 speak of cataclysmic upheaval that will take place in nature. Notice it says, The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. You know, there are those today who, you know, they worship Mother Earth and they're always on these, you know, campaigns. And I think, don't get me wrong, I think we need to take care of the earth. But, you know, Mother Earth, I mean, it goes back to what Paul talked about in Romans. They worship the, the creation rather than the creator. And that's what these people are doing. And they get all uptight because of the way, you know, people are treating Mother Earth. And these people need to understand, they, they haven't seen anything yet. Wait till God gets a hold of this place. I mean, the earth gets radically shook. Radically demolished, if you would, during that time of the tribulation time. And Isaiah speaks of that here. Chapter 25 paints a picture of when Jesus returned. Notice verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and and the rebuke of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is why we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Isaiah 26 begins, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And the chapter is the song of praise that the Jews will sing when Jesus reigns in Israel. And the chapter ends with this incredible flurry. Notice verse 19 is a prediction of the resurrection of the dead. Your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall rise in Christ. We will overcome. And verse 19 to me sounds a lot Like Romans 6, verse 5, If we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. That's what Paul said. After speaking of our resurrection, look at what Isaiah says in verses 20 and 21. It sounds amazingly like the rapture to me. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for iniquity. Notice that. The people of God are taken away to his chamber while he's pouring out his indignation on those who are left behind. Isaiah 27 verse 1 tells us, In that day the Lord will, with His severe sword, great and strong, will punish the Leviathan and the fleeing serpent and the, the Leviathan, that twisted serpent. He will slay the reptile that is in the sea. In the book of Revelation, John uses the same type of imagery in, in speaking about Satan. 
Chapter 27 describes God's preservation of Israel and the return to the land that He promised them. In verse 6, He says, Those who come, He shall cause to take root in Jacob, and Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. That's an amazing verse, and I point it out because Israel today, it's a country about the size of New Jersey. It's a really small, small place, but it is the world's third largest producer of fruit in the world today. Fulfillment of this prophecy. Chapter 30. Chapter 30 is God's rebuke of King Hezekiah. And with the Assyrians bearing down on him from the north, Hezekiah turned to Egypt for protection. And God rebukes him for this. And we're going to talk a little bit about this more when we get to the sections on Christ. Chapter 32 describes how life will be different when King Jesus reigns in righteousness. Chapter 33 describes God's judgment on Israel's invaders both then and yet to come, that when you lift up, verse 3 says, yourself, the nation shall be scattered. Chapters 34 and 35 go way beyond the scope of any local conflict. And here the prophet looks through the immediate future to the final days of man. It's very, very uh, end times. In chapter 34, he describes the battle for Jerusalem, or what we call the battle of Armageddon. And he lays that out in that chapter. And then in chapters 36 through 39 is a parenthetical passage inserted by Isaiah to explain how God fulfills his promises to Judah and delivers them from the Assyrian invasion. And it parallels almost exactly 2 Kings chapters 18 through 20. But I want you to note in chapter 36... Isaiah describes the Assyrian threat, and in chapters 37, he recounts King Hezekiah's prayer. And Isaiah's own assuring prophecy of God's deliverance is described. Look at chapter 37, verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose in the morning, there were corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and remained in Nineveh. One of the most, you know, this is a story that a lot of people, they know about David and Goliath and Moses in the Red Sea and Joshua and, and the battle at Jericho. But this is a battle where the Assyrians are surrounding the city. Hezekiah and Isaiah, they pray, they seek the Lord. And in the night, God destroys 185,000 of the enemy. Just incredible. Incredible work of the Lord. Chapter 38 tells us about Hezekiah's sickness, his impending death, his prayer and his healing, and the miraculous sign that confirmed his promise. And then the blunder that he made in, in showing off the treasures to the group of, uh, that came from Babylon. So there's kind of the book, the overview of chapters 1 through 39. We did it. Um, I know that was a lot, but uh, hopefully it'll, it will encourage you to, you know, go and maybe this week to read through all 66 chapters and uh, maybe next week come and uh, having just really looked at chapters uh, 40 through 66 and we'll dive into those and, uh, and, and go over those as well. But hopefully you're seeing this this cord, this, this storyline of, of, of God just dealing with His people and pronouncing judgment, but at the same time saying, but, but there's hope. There's hope. And the hope is in this one who is coming. The hope is in this one who's going to set up this, this everlasting kingdom. And we'll talk more about that next time. Father, we love You. We thank You, Lord, for Your Word. And we thank You, God, just at how amazing it is that over such a long span of time you sought to reveal to us your heart and your plan. That you sought, Lord, to 
that you seek now to give us over to that doctrine that is able to transform our lives. And God, we ask, we, we confess that we need you to mold us. And so, Lord, I pray that just in the coming weeks as we take this journey, that you would teach us. And, Lord, that you would just open our, our eyes to the big picture that you've laid out for us in your word. Lord, I thank you for these precious people tonight and just for their just willingness to study and to concentrate. And we just look forward to, as we march through these books of the prophets, in Jesus' name, amen.